What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Andy. Andy is the founder of Fractional, which is a platform that allows users to buy, sell, and mint fractions of NFTs. Andy is part of the MakerDAO Mafia and a total legend. He's been super active in the cryptosphere since his initial entry and has been nonstop building ever since. He's also considered someone that has great takes on Twitter and gives it to you straight. His authenticity combined with his crypto knowledge is what makes this conversation such a great one. If you're looking to learn about the markets, how to build a company, or how to fractionalize your NFTs, then you've come to the right place. Please enjoy my conversation with Andy. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, I've, I've been in crypto for a while. I got, so I graduated with a computer engineering degree back in 2016. Uh, and I was working at like a pretty boring fintech company that was owned by Fidelity. Uh, and kind of like during that same first year out of school, as I was already realizing that my job was really boring, I started to learn about crypto. Uh, I first got into it because I was trying to deposit money on an offshore sports gambling site, funny enough. But then I like downloaded Coinbase and I was like, wait, what is Ethereum? What does this mean? And like really just diving in. And once I had learned more, I was hooked. Um, and so then in the summer of 2017, I was changing jobs and really wanted to find something in crypto. And I had ended up interviewing at a couple crypto places, funny enough, but I had literally no experience. I had no idea what I was doing. And so I found myself at like a small fintech startup who were crypto aware, I would say, but not actively doing anything in the crypto space. Um, but I was able to pretty quickly convince them that we should be. And so I just basically, I got really lucky and was able to kind of learn solidity on the job in 2017 and really figure things out as I went. And yeah, that was great. And then from there, uh, I joined MakerDAO right at the start of 2019. And so I spent two years there on the smart contracts team and, uh, you know, kind of did a lot of different things there. Maker, I think, was really, really formative for me in so much as like how I think about governance and building massive distributed decentralized systems uh, and just like all the challenges that come come along with it. I spent the first bit of my time there um doing a lot of formal verification and testing for multi-collateral die which wasn't live when i first joined uh, and then i spent the second half of my time there recovering from the black thursday market crashes at the start of covid which was uh it was a really really rough week but I, in the end maker came out stronger for it and like i learned a ton um which so in, in retrospect now i think it was probably pretty helpful for how i think and reason about crypto and building things and then yeah i left maker last fall i think october november time and i was getting super super deep into nfts doing like some consulting work and writing yearn uh, strategies and stuff and then decided to start fractional full-time in february of this year okay amazing all right well i, I, I want to go back a little bit back to when you first were kind of getting involved with uh, crypto so you mentioned that you were you were kind of utilizing uh, cryptocurrencies for for uh, gambling, which I, I think is a very popular 
use case, especially back then. That, that's what, that was like the big, it's either like Silk Road or it's gambling, which is pretty funny. But um, what was <laughs> yeah. your, yeah, what was your kind of uh, um, thought thoughts like on acquiring this currency? Because did you have previous exposure where you're like, oh, okay, this is normal, like a, a digital currency, no problem. Or was it like, all right, I have to go buy this weird like Ethereum thing or whatever you're using and then go like use this currency on this website? Like what was that kind of process? Yeah, so uh, I would say I've always been pretty tech forward um, in general. Not surprising, I'm a, I'm a nerdy kid who played a ton of video games and then went to school for computer engineering. Like, of course, I'm a little bit uh, tech forward with a lot of this stuff. Um, but so I wasn't super involved in anything crypto prior to summer of uh, like, or I guess, what was it like? Spring of 2017, I think, was when I bought my first Bitcoin. Um, and at that point, I remember the price was like 1500 bucks or something. And my roommate was like, oh, you better be careful. What if it goes down? And I was like, I don't know. I feel like it might go up. Um, but I was I was pretty open to it. I, I remember in college, there was like a really big Bitcoin crash down to like 100 or 200 bucks. I, I don't really remember the specifics of that time. I remember like seeing it on TV and being like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of it. And I think a big part of that was I just didn't have any money to spend, like to invest. Uh, honestly, all the money I had at that point was like going towards paying for school and paying for beer. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I was always open to it and I thought it was exciting. And like, Literally the first day I read about it, I was just like, oh my God, yeah, this totally makes sense. And like, I just want to learn more about this. So I would say overall, I was pretty open to it. And I also like didn't have to go to some CD site or anything at that point. Coinbase at least like worked relatively well. So I, was, I wasn't doing anything like too crazy. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that when you read the Bitcoin white paper, you actually understood it. Is that just because you understood the technical details behind it? Because when I first read it, I like didn't know what's going on. I was like, I don't know what this is trying to tell me, but people were so enthusiastic. I was like, okay, I need to just keep reading this until I understand it. But so yeah, was it, was it that because your technical background, you're like, okay, I, I, I understand this and there's something really powerful here. And were you attracted to it from like a standpoint of, okay, down with the banks, like, like the, you know, the dollars worthless, like this is what we need. Or was it more of like the, the technical kind of like beauty of, of like this solving this Byzantine general's, uh, general's problem? Yeah. So I would say. I definitely didn't understand it technically when I first read it. I more understood it on like the philosophical, like more idealistic level. Um, I'm like definitely by no means like a, a networks like genius or anything. And so a lot of that stuff took a lot more time and research to really be able to understand. And not, even now I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't call myself an expert on that kind of more really intense technological side of blockchains. Um, I generally stick to the solidity side of things. Um, but yeah, so I would say mostly that, uh, and for, then for me, kind of like, I think with the same thing of why I, I thought it was exciting, I think at first it was mostly around kind of just like my general feelings towards money and the economy. And, and to me, it, it made a lot of sense. I was deeply in student debt at the time. And like the idea that I could be getting in early to something that could potentially go up a lot if people actually adopted it and used it was exciting to me as someone who didn't have very much money. Um, and then at the same time, like I very, very quickly moved from being interested in Bitcoin to being interested in Ethereum because of the programmability of it. Um, I've, I'm probably not the best developer ever. I'm not even probably. I'm not. I'm, I just I really like experimenting and building things and then like just messing around with different ideas. And the ability to be able to do that on Ethereum was just so easy comparatively. 
that it was just like really, really addicting for me to make some random small dap that no one cared about, but I thought it was really fun. And I had a lot of fun just like on random weekends doing stuff like that. That's awesome. Okay. So, so we're talking now summer of 2017, you have, you have some crypto and you, you kind of understand, you know, the, the high level of, of what's going on in this ecosystem. And then that's when you moved in 2017, you moved to the uh, fintech startup that was like crypto aware. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So they were, I believe they were technically the first ever like robo advisor product that allowed you to like do some of your robo advisor investing into Bitcoin. They did that. They had that in like 2015. This was way before I, I knew about them. Um, and so I had like, basically I went on AngelList and just searched blockchain or crypto or whatever and applied to literally any company that was in New York City that had that in their bio or said they were interested in it. Um, they were just the ones who actually wanted to hire me. Uh, and so I was like, my role when I started was just like a backend Java developer. I was working on like APIs and random stuff like that. Uh, and like then as like the ICO craze was going crazy and everything, I was basically able to convince them that like, you know, we could make a lot of our like API infrastructure more interesting and like maybe more futuristic by bringing in blockchain and having like a sign on with Ethereum and all these different types of things. Um, and they were just kind of like, yeah, sure. Let's try it. It can't hurt to try. <laughs> and so I got really fortunate there. That's awesome. Okay. So you're there, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of working in for this FinTech company, but they are crypto aware. So you're kind of falling deeper in, into the rabbit hole. And then at what point were you like, all right, uh, there's this thing called MakerDAO, which I've been reading about. I want to apply or how, how did MakerDAO come about? Yeah. So I, we ended up building a really, really great team, uh, at this company that I was at. And, uh, and so it was myself and Noah Zinsmeister, who you may or may not know, he's the head of engineering at Uniswap. Uh, we were like the two smart contract developers on that team. Uh, and then a couple of people who ended up going to wire and a few other places for like biz dev and product. Um, and so we went to ETH Berlin in 2018. And that was my first time at a larger like crypto thing that was kind of outside of like the New York City area. It was actually my first time ever out of the country. I had to get a passport for it. It was really, really fun. Um, but that to me opened up my eyes a lot to like just how big the crypto and Ethereum world was specifically and got me significantly more excited about just like continuing to get deeper into that space. Um, and so then... I was kind of ready to move on, uh, as was a lot of the team. There was internal stuff within the company that had nothing to do with really the team. And I just kind of started looking for different DeFi projects and different interesting projects that I thought uh, would be a fun place to work. And Maker was like honestly one of the few places that was a, a big team that was building interesting things that actually like had the funds to hire people at the time. Because this was like, at this point it was you know, mid 2018, things were basically just down only. And so not a lot of places were hiring. That's cool. So, so did you know, like, did you know roughly about Maker beforehand or was a lot of the learnings on the job? I was aware of how Maker worked um, to a certain extent and definitely not all of the complexities of it. Cause it is like a really, really intense smart contract system. Um, but that was basically the extent of my knowledge of it. I basically knew that it was a Ethereum-backed stablecoin pegged to the U.S. dollar.
Awesome. Okay. And then also, you said that you said Black Thursday, which was I think it was. I always get my I always get this confused, but it was March of 2020, I believe. So COVID, everyone's freaking out. Lockdowns going into effect. Markets drop a lot. What happened to Maker during that period of time? Yeah. So it was like a really, really crazy stressful. Um, <laughs> couple days but essentially the the market started tanking really hard uh and then alongside that there was uh some like technical issues with maker not not like the code stopped working but that it was just maybe not configured the way that it should have been uh for example there were like the auctions to liquidate um loan positions were just like way too fast and so gas had spiked these auctions were all clearing way too fast for essentially no money at all uh and the system was like seemingly falling around all around us um and obviously there was significantly more that was going on with like cascading liquidations on on bitmex and all these other places um but for a period of time it was like it felt like everything was falling apart in maker and that we were going to have to like pause the system or call emergency shutdown or something. So what, what, what ended up happening? What was everything okay at the end or, or what, you know, what was the, re- the result? Well, okay. To a certain extent, I think maker is better for it. Uh, but a lot of collateral in maker was basically when someone gets liquidated, there would be an auction for their collateral. Um, a lot of that, a lot of those auctions finished with the winning bid being essentially $0. And so I think maybe like low eight figures, which at the time felt like a ton. Now you have eight figure hacks in DeFi all the time. Um, but at that time it was a lot of money, uh, was basically sold away for free um, through these liquidations. And so the system was like basically undercapitalized. Not that it didn't have the ETH to give people um, like their money back, just like the system ended up having to sell a bunch of maker in order to like recuperate its debts of die that it had given out um, and that that created like this whole backstop coalition of people who were basically saying that they would backstop any maker auctions to help the system raise money uh, it was actually a really cool experience of a bunch of people in DeFi kind of all coming together to like work together to make sure that maker was going to make it through this um, but it was a definitely a crazy couple of weeks yeah, I, I I can only imagine. I mean, that was a crazy time just for like every single market in the world. So I can, I can yeah. only imagine what it would be like at Maker. Okay, so so that was kind of that was in the spring, summer. You, you were still working there, and in the fall, you decided, okay, um, I'm going to kind of leave Maker because uh, you know for whatever reason. Yeah. So actually, take me through that thought process. Why did you decide? All right, you know, learned a lot here. I'm going to move on to to my next thing. Yeah, you know, I think it was it was definitely a multifaceted choice. Uh, I so far in my career have like not really stayed at most of my places the where I've worked super long. Um, you know, my first two jobs I stayed at both places for like a year, so Maker was the longest I'd ever worked on one thing. Um, but I, I really I enjoyed my time there. There was a lot of transition or a lot of like changing of people within the smart contracts team in particular, um, and I just kind of felt like it was the right timing, especially with DeFi summer happening, and that was kind of like starting to wind down but still crazy i was just like super super burnt out not necessarily because of maker explicitly but just like everything in crypto was moving incredibly fast and i just felt like i needed more time to be able to just like do what i found interesting um and like also just take advantage of some of the crazy farming opportunities and 
governance airdrops and all this other stuff. Uh, and at the same time, I was starting to get really, really obsessed with NFTs. Uh, it was kind of like the same time that NBA Top Shot was, I was like spending a lot of my time on NBA Top Shot uh, and like starting to learn about some of the other markets and stuff. And so I just felt like I was being pulled in a lot of directions and I kind of wanted to just bet on, not necessarily bet on myself, but just like bet on the the other things that were going on outside of my like normal day job. That's so cool. Okay. So, so yeah, like talking about NBA Top Shot, was that your initial foray into NFTs or did you have previous exposure that you were interested in, but it wasn't, you know, like for example, like CryptoKitties for me, I, I bought them in 2017 and bred them and whatnot. And it was cool, but it wasn't that cool. It wasn't until 2019 where I, I learned about crypto voxels. That's why I like dove really deep. So did you have a similar experience or was it really like Top Shot was the first project that you entered and you're like, wow, there's so much more, uh, so many more things that you can build here. Yeah. So, I mean, I like, I remember the CryptoKitties craziness that was, uh, what, what was that like 2017, 2018? Um, I, I didn't really participate in it too much. I was, I don't know, I kind of thought it was like pretty stupid how, how insane the, the prices were. And I mean, like in retrospect, maybe, maybe I was right. Um, but Top Shot for me, I would say like, I think it was the first time that I like bought an NFT ex- like exclusively because I thought it was really cool and I wanted to own it as opposed to just like thinking that I could potentially sell it for more money in the future, which was very formative for me and like, oh, kind of an aha moment of, okay, I get it now. Like just because for me, something that's interesting is basketball and I and I love basketball and it's fun for me to own the rarest LeBron James moments. But like for someone else, maybe that's like you're saying crypto voxels or, you know, a board ape or a crypto punk. And so just like having that first experience for myself personally, where I found something that I really liked and that I was just excited to own really helped shape how I thought about NFTs going forward. But yeah, it was definitely the first time where I spent any like serious money on NFTs. Okay. So then at what point were you, did you decide, okay, Hey, I'm going to build, I'm going to build in this space. Cause I feel like getting involved from a monetary level and kind of messing around and investing in stuff. That's, that's like, you know, I guess level two, level one is like basic interest and learning. Level two is kind of like putting your money where your mouth is. Level three is like like when you're the deepest, that's when you're like, okay, I'm so confident in this space. I'm going to start building. So how how did that evolution start? Like, and what was the thought process behind, okay, I want to start building and I know the perfect thing to build. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think for me, I've been like essentially all in crypto for long enough that like not building in the space just like isn't really an option. I'm just going to do it until I don't have a job anymore. Um, that's just kind of like, it's what I think is interesting. It's what I'm excited about. It's all I really think about in a, for, for a lot of the time in my life. Um, and so that was kind of never really a question. The question was just like, do I want to stay with DeFi stuff? Do I want to do NFT stuff? Um, to be honest, a lot of DeFi stuff to me isn't really that interesting. It's more just like, you know, for a long time, it was kind of the only really like super valuable thing happening on Ethereum. And it was the way that you could get involved with the a ton of really, really sharp people who are building super interesting things to themselves and that were super incredibly complex and challenging and you could learn a lot. But like, I'm not a finance guy. Uh, and so a lot of that stuff to me, like I had to learn what options were because I was learning about DeFi options. Like a lot of these things I just don't have very much interest in getting deep on outside of now just, you know, ways to make money like on Ethereum. Uh, But NFTs 
they like hit a lot more of the things that I'm personally interested in. I'm really into sports. I'm into like collecting sneakers and streetwear. I'm a big video game player, like that kind of stuff all vibes with NFTs way more than with DeFi. Uh, and so I knew that I wanted to do something and probably start my own thing. I had had that feeling probably since like last summer as I was starting to think that it was time to move on from Maker and figure all of that out. Uh, and it was just like making sure I figured out the right thing and what I, what it was that I really wanted to do and what I was going to be excited to work on for, you know, the next 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Um, kind of at that same time as back in January when Top Shot was really starting to blow up, there were a bunch of daily fantasy sports players who were coming into Top Shot and they were um, pooling funds together to buy different moments that they wanted. And at, at the time, you know, now the numbers are silly, but it was like, buying the rarest John Morant moment for $35,000. And a lot of people who I would talk to were like, oh, yeah, I have an interest in doing this, but, like, you know, I don't have a bunch of friends who can pool together $35,000. And just, like, the idea that you could kind of parameterize and make that all trustless and easy to do on-chain was really interesting to me. And it also lends itself more so to some of the DeFi stuff that I have experience with, which I do think is helpful, kind of, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than just minting an NFT and, you know, selling an NFT on OpenSea or something like that, which I enjoy that challenge of trying to figure out some of the mechanism design and, and game theory behind some of this stuff. That's awesome. Okay. So, so, okay. So, so all these interests are kind of coalescing and, and you're seeing, okay, this is the perfect opportunity for me to create my own product now. And, you know, I've, I've learned enough and I've built enough where I, I feel very confident in this. And so, so fractional, can you kind of describe to me what is fractional and why is it exciting? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the really, really basic version of Fractional is Fractional is a protocol to be able to uh, buy, sell, and mint fractions of NFTs, which can either be uh, ERC-20 tokens that are the normal tokens you would use in you know DeFi or a trade on Uniswap, or they can be ERC-1155 tokens, which are NFTs that have images uh, representing them and can be traded on Rarible or OpenSea. Uh, that's the really, really fast version. Uh, to get a little bit more into the weeds, you take an NFT or a basket of NFTs and lock them inside of something that we call a vault, which is a trustless smart contract. Uh, it's very important to us that everything we build is uh, completely decentralized and trustless so that, you know, one, everything is safe. There's no risk of, of you losing your funds because of a malicious person or something like that. Um, and then from there, when you lock your NFT inside of a vault, you get back the fractions and you as the you know, creator of the vault get 100% of the ownership, and then you get to do with them whatever you want. And so generally that means uh, maybe doing some for sale in like a MISO auction on SushiSwap or listing a bunch for sale on OpenSea. Uh, there's a bunch of different options there. And we just we basically want to give people the uh, the ability to do whatever they think is most interesting because I feel like that's how you get the really cool and exciting projects. That's awesome. Okay, so so why did you decide to target fractionalization? Because I feel like you know, I, like I feel like there's you know so many different areas you can build in NFTs, whether it be just I don't know games or art or whatever. But fractionalization is kind of a a mixture between DeFi and NFTs. So why do you decide to build there? And also like more broadly, like why is fractionalization important? Yeah, for sure. So I think you know I kind of think about a lot of the things that are built on Ethereum as being one of two different like in one of two different categories and it's either like a, a protocol or a product 
And I've always been more interested in the protocol level building. And so like to me, building a, you know, a play to earn video game is building a product on top of Ethereum, which is awesome and very cool. It's just not as much, honestly, I don't think it's one, my perfect skill set, and also what I'm most interested in. Um, and so to me, fractional is a, is a really awesome and interesting protocol that can power a ton of different use cases for NFTs, as opposed to just building one particular use case that would be, you know, uh, like like I said, a, an NFT exchange or a play to earn game or something like that. Um, and so that to me is, is most interesting. And it also allows for just like a ton of really fun experimenting and trying to build like what is like what is the most exciting thing for a developer to build on top of and, and different stuff like that, which I find to be a fun challenge. That's awesome. Okay. So could you explain in kind of a high level terms, how fractional works and also, uh, can you also dive deeper into the, into the vaults? Yeah. Yeah. So basically we have what's, what is a factory contract, which basically every, say you come with a board ape, you would call a function in this factory contract that's called mint. And you would say, uh, you provide what NFT you want to fractionalize and the factory contract will pull that NFT out of your wallet and mint a new vault contract, which um, then will custody the NFT and is also the uh, creates the fractional tokens that represent your ownership. From there, the vault contract just sends the original fraction person who fractionalizes all of the tokens. And that's kind of like the first step in fraction. Like once you've done that, you've now fractionalized an NFT, but you own 100% of the ownership. Uh, because you have all the tokens so then from there you kind of have like the next phase of the life cycle of a fractionalized nft which is just you know generic trading the fractions are they, they change hands that you sell them to your friend or you know whatever you want to do with those fractions we've seen tons of different examples between just super generic fractionalizing and putting a, a pair on uniswap or like some more crazy stuff like what Punk's comic is doing, where you stake your, another NFT to earn fractionalized crypto punks, and you know whatever you can imagine. Uh, from there, users are able to all kind of vote together on what they think a reserve price should be to uh, execute a buyout. And so, as long as fifty percent of the tokens are actively voting on a buyout, then essentially the NFT is for sale. And at that point, if the NFT is for sale, a whale can come in and trigger an auction to buy out the entire piece. And that's kind of the last step of the life cycle of a fractionalized NFT is you break it up, all the pieces trade around, and then eventually you reconstitute the NFT back into uh, and send it back out to the, to the new buyer. And so from there, you'd have a three to seven day auction where any anyone you don't have to own any pieces of the nfc or anything can come in and bid on the piece and once there's a winner all of the fractional token holders are able to burn their tokens and get back ethereum for the amount that was sold and the new owner of the nft can pull it out of the vault and then they just have ownership of it awesome okay so so why do some people uh decide to fractionalize their uh, either NFT or collection of, of, of NFTs? Is there any sort of reason that you see that's reoccurring or do people just, just like want to do it because it's fun? Or well, yeah, what, what are these reasons? Yeah, it's a good question. I think hopefully the reasons expand as we kind of 
go into like a more unique use cases for nfts but i won't get into all of that speculation but at, at like a really high level i think there's a couple reasons um one is using it as like a reward system for existing holders or like a, basically a way to expand ownership of like expand the amount of collectors that you have for example um you see like uh an artist like drifter shoots his cheapest pieces are worth you know I don't know how much Ethereum, but a lot, like 20 Ethereum, I think. And that's not like super collectible for a lot of people. Uh, but someone fractionalized one of his NFTs, and now you can collect a portion of one of his pieces for a significantly cheaper amount. Uh, and so that's like one pretty straightforward use case as a way. It's a way for artists to collect, connect with a larger collector base and not necessarily like dilute the amount of pieces that they're creating or anything like that. Uh, Another that we've seen is just someone who wants to potentially take off some amount of uh, like some amount of taking profits without selling the entire piece. And so say you bought a CryptoPunk for one Ethereum and now it's worth 100 and you don't want to sell the entire CryptoPunk, but maybe you want to sell 50% of it. Uh, this is probably the cleanest way for you to come in and you just fractionalize it. You sell 50% off and you hold on to 50%. Uh, those are probably like the two biggest use cases that we've seen right now. We've seen different projects with different kind of like crazy incentive models and stuff, um, but I'm very excited to see kind of as the space matures and evolves, uh, fractional being used as a way to uh, handle like play to earn game items and uh, different things like that, where you'll be able to have joint ownership over a, over a fractionalized NFT and maybe use that to play a game of parallel or like use an Axie for for a week or something like that. Uh, I think there's a ton of really interesting use cases that haven't really been explored yet. That's super cool. Okay, so so to dive deeper into that, so it's like if I want to lend out my axes to other people or if I want to lend out my new sword to other people, is this also kind of like a like a, a there's a lending function or is it mainly just they have a fraction of this asset therefore they can actually utilize that in, in the game. So, it's a bit of an alpha leak, but there's not yet a lending function. Um, but it is something that we uh, are actively working on for the, for the next version of what we release. Uh, the the exact specifics of it aren't totally nailed down yet, um, but uh, there should be a pretty elegant way for uh, basically the fractional token owners to be able to lend out the, the underlying piece to basically the highest bidder for some fixed period of time and. Uh, and then they can use that to play in a game, or maybe maybe it's not even for play or Maybe there's like, you know, a claimable item that you can get with the board ape that you have, or something. Uh, you can uh, borrow it and claim those items. That's awesome. Okay, so so what are some weird or interesting ways that you've seen fractional be used, like in the wild, like but but yeah, by by users in some in some manner that surprised you. Yeah, so I think probably one of the things that has been more surprising to me, but in retrospect makes a ton of sense, is some of the more like community building based stuff with Fractional, basically used as a way to bootstrap almost like a more meme driven community. Like there's a particular hoodie punk that's fractionalized that has like really memed itself into existence in the Fractional Discord. They have their own token gated channel in there and every morning they post hood morning instead of good morning to each other uh and like random little things like that i didn't really 
I didn't realize how how much of the community building side of things people would be excited about with fractional. And I guess it makes sense. It's just like it's fun to own NFTs with your friends and and talk about it. It doesn't really have to be more than that. It doesn't have to be some crazy investor club DAO that owns NFTs and does all of this. Like sometimes it's just all fun to own the same thing. Um, so that's probably the one that I I didn't really expect, but in retrospect, I should have. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else like super crazy. Uh, there's been some interesting uses of it uh, for like fundraising. There's currently uh, an auction, like a party bid that's going on, which will then fractionalize the NFT uh, to sell a Justin Aversano Twin Flames, and all of the money raised from that is going to fund uh, Raw DAO, which is a new photography DAO. So it's a cool way to basically use fractional to allow for a large amount of people to to buy into a very coveted nft and use those funds to to kind of bootstrap a new DAO, which i think is pretty exciting as another good example that's super cool have you seen any sort of like interesting buyout behavior where um i don't know people got really good deals through, through the buyout mechanism or i don't know anything anything in in the buyout arena yeah so there definitely have been a couple pieces that have sold for too cheap in a buyout um and I think part of that is just you know, fractionals auctions do not have the same amount of uh, eyes on them as say like an auction on OpenSea or something, which is something that we're pretty actively trying to figure out. Um, you do also get some interesting dynamics sometimes because so if you're bidding an ETH and you but you own seventy percent of the fractions, like you only actually have to pay for, you'll basically get paid back for most of the ETH you're bidding with. So most of the time, whoever owns, if one of the larger owners is actually the highest bidder, like it's very hard to beat them because they're not, they don't really have to pay full price, um, which is one of the interesting things to watch. I've seen a few, um, a few times where someone has fractionalized something and then maybe it hasn't had the demand they hoped for and they sold 20% and then they kind of do, do buy it out after a month or so and to, to get their piece back and pay out all the other owners. Um, We've also seen interesting times where there's been a buyout when people didn't want one. Uh, for example, the there was a zombie CryptoPunk that was fractionalized, and uh, basically a couple large whales had voted for there to be an active buyout, but most of the smaller holders weren't interested. And so the buyout started at a price that was less than everyone had kind of bought in for. It ended up going for way more than... Um, then everyone's buy-in, so it, it ended up being fine. But there was like a period of two days where people were really worried that they were going to have to, they were going to all take a loss on this CryptoPunk being bought out. That's awesome. Okay, so will will Fractional ever release a native token? And if so, what do you think that token's purpose will will be? Yeah, so it's Fractional 100% will at some point decentralize our protocol and you know kind of take that next step when or what exactly that looks like to be honest is something that we're not spending a lot of time thinking about right now uh we really like kind of our first priority first and foremost is to make sure that our the product and the protocol is in a good place for that to be ready um the way that i think about kind of the separation of protocol and product is you have this these underlying smart contracts that do a lot of interesting things uh, and some complex things that should ideally be governed and run by a, a decentralized protocol, decentralized community. Uh, and then you have kind of 
fractional our organization that is you know we're working with different um, brands and uh, museums and things like that to help bring fractional there uh, and so that will always kind of you know to a certain extent remain inside of the fractional org kind of in the same way that you have like uniswap protocol and uniswap labs and all these different things um, and so kind of what what it's what the use of a fractional protocol governance would look like would be kind of maintaining and upgrading uh, software or all the smart contracts. I feel pretty strongly about creating non-upgradable smart contracts. Uh, and so that would be, you know, building out version, well, we're working on version two currently, but building out version three of fractional and four and whatever else is to come. And um, there also are, are going to be some new interesting mechanisms in in the upgraded versions that are probably too complex to get into on this podcast uh, that will require some uh, some some governance participation to make sure that they're tuned correctly and different stuff like that. That's awesome. Okay, so so what are because you built in Web two, you've you're, you've obviously built in Web three. What are some of the diff- major differences and major challenges that you face as a Web three builder that just doesn't really exist in Web two, and then also like vice versa, like. Like, what are what are some of the major issues in Web two that you don't really experience in Web three, if any? Yeah, so I think the hardest part about, or one of the hardest parts about building in Web three, is that it's really really challenging to like slowly iterate and test things over time. And it's just like not really something that you can really have the option to do. Um, like if I have a small idea for an update to our smart contract system, it's like kind of a pain to to put that in and deploy a fully new smart contract system and do all of that. Uh, and so a lot of people kind of get around that by having upgradable contracts. Uh, I personally, as I said earlier, don't really like upgradable contracts. I feel like it kind of, you know, just increases the the risk to, you know, have an error in code when it gets upgraded. And like there was recently a bug in uh, compounds code when they upgraded one of their contracts and it gave away a bunch of compound tokens for free uh, and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of value in having really hardened smart contracts that aren't upgraded. Um, and so that, that creates a ton of challenges as far as design. And you just have to be a little more methodical about how you think about things and kind of have a larger and longer vision so that you can say, okay, we're going to build this and release this, and then we're going to spend time and really think about and contemplate what we did, what needs to be better, how do we make, how do we improve on the system, and then build it. You can't just kind of keep shipping small updates to the code, which is definitely challenging. Um, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. I'd say, uh, another one is definitely having to deal with like gas costs and all of that. It's something that's been a real pain point for our users, as you know, kind of fractional in and of itself tends to, uh, you know really, really vibe with a lot of the uh, lower net worth users who are interested in NFTs. Um, it's a lot harder to make the case to someone who's worth millions of dollars that they shouldn't just buy their own CryptoPunk. They should instead buy a fraction of a CryptoPunk on Fractional. But, you know, our, our median wallet on Fractional is only worth like $2,500. And so for them, having to pay $100 for a swap fee on Ethereum is just like a non-starter. And so trying to figure out how we can alleviate those issues is definitely challenging. Uh, and then as far as the the benefits to building in Web3 over over Web2, uh, honestly, I, th- I think there are a ton. Um, just the, the community engagement and buy-in we have from people, even without having a token or anything, is, is really like, 
it's unprecedented in compared to web two. We just have people who are in discord and Twitter all the time being super helpful and giving us feedback and all of this, uh, that we really try to take very seriously. And just like building kind of in this like really open and fun community is it's really, really fun. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And so I, I think that that's like a major benefit that web two doesn't necessarily have. Yeah, speaking of community, I feel like there's that is a totally new dynamic in, in my opinion that that doesn't really exist too 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 much in, in Web two. It's, it's, it does for certain products, but most Web three products have, have some sort of community behind them, usually because because there there eventually will be some sort of decentralization and, and token. But so, do you have a strategy when it comes to like kind of marketing or or kind of uh, like helping the community grow or just kind of um, yeah, kind of the marketing slash community side of, 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 of the, of the, of the, you know, fractional. Cause I see that, you know, you're very active on Twitter. Is that like, is that part of a strategy or do you just like the post and, and, you know, like, like, I'd love to hear all about like the kind of marketing slash community building side. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's been one of like the weird transitions for me over the last like year and a half is going from having a, a Twitter account with like 300 followers to, you know, I don't know, 50 something thousand followers and like what that means and, and how you make sure to use that for things that are benefit beneficial for fractional and for myself and all of that. Um, I think to be honest, we don't have like a super intense kind of like marketing plan and how we think about things right now as we, as we grow and scale, it's something that we, you know, hopefully can have professionals come in and, and do for us at a much better level than we could. Um, but I think kind of what we think about right now is that it, just like authenticity is really valuable. Uh, people just like knowing and talking to someone who feels very real to them and like they're active users in the space and, you know, care about the same things. Uh, and I think that that really gets you a long way. Um, and then we've also kind of at a more like strategic level, we've had really, really great success with Twitter spaces and like just are super fortunate to have D's on our team who just is the absolute king of Twitter spaces. Um, and so that's been really, really helpful. Uh, but kind of as we as we grow and scale, we're, we're actively looking to kind of codify some more like some more high level marketing strategy and how we plan to present ourselves as a brand and all of that stuff online. Um, but I think we want we want to be like very aware that and like just make sure that that doesn't like come at the sake of authenticity because that's super important to us. Awesome. Okay. So, so what are your, I mean, you mentioned like fractional, you know, like kind of two, which you're working on now and then three and four and so on and so forth. What are your future plans for, for fractional? Uh, like, are you going to continue to add features and upgrade the, the, the overall protocol or like, yeah, just tell me like your long-term goals for fractional. Yeah. So I think there's still a ton of work to be done kind of uh, working through and nailing down the mechanism design for what it means to fractionalize something and what it means to have a buyout for something and kind of everything that is in between it. Uh, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff that you can do that's you know powerful with blockchain and everything that comes along with that. Uh, so definitely focusing on that and, and just making those systems better and also making it just feel better to, to own a fraction of an NFT. I think there's definitely like some mental gaps right now between owning a fraction of a CryptoPunk and owning a CryptoPunk. And those will probably always exist to a certain extent, but wanting to alleviate those wherever possible. And then outside of that, uh, you know, NF collectible NFTs are just a small portion of what where I think NFTs are going at, at large. Uh, 
and we want to make sure that we're well positioned to be able to handle all of that um, kind of as as they come. And so that is, you know, gaming NFTs and then eventually real world assets and, you know, houses and uh, DeFi products that are NFTs. We want to make sure that we're able to accommodate and support all of those regardless of uh, what they are or how they're made. And so that's kind of the main focus for now. Um, and then as we as we progress that, also just making it easier for, for end users to do this stuff, whether that's a mobile app or, you know, USD onboarding, all these little things that uh, definitely make a difference for the smaller users who are more inclined to use something like Fractional. Awesome. Okay. So, so now moving away from, from Fractional, now kind of talking more, more broadly, what sectors within the NFT markets do, do you personally find most exciting? It can be gaming, collectibles, like you mentioned houses, like, like yeah, what, what sector is most appealing to yourself? Yeah, you know, I think um, the gaming stuff to me is really, really interesting. I'm a, you know, it more so used to be, but I, I, I love video games and the ideas of kind of play to earn and, and a lot of these different gaming assets being NFTs and all that is incredibly interesting to me. Um, I'm sometimes more skeptical than others on, you know, how good these games are going to actually be. Uh, but I'm really, really excited to see some of them like, you know, really come out and start to experiment with those. Um, so that's definitely one sector that I'm interested in. I think another one that I find really interesting is some of the other, like, just kind of the way that we think about how NFTs and like the financialization of NFTs kind of connect. I don't really think of fractional in and of itself as like an NFT financialization protocol. I think of it more as like a really, really low level thing that could be used in NFT financialization. Um, but like lending markets and renting and all these different things. Um, I'm really, really excited to see how that stuff grows and less so for, for, uh, you know, of JPEG, but way more so for what does it mean if you have a fractional lot you, you, or you have an NFT of a home and you can rent that home through NFT, like through NFTs, or you can like take out a loan on your house through like a NFT focused DeFi protocol and all these different things. I, I think that like the, the possibilities get really, really cool when you start thinking about that kind of stuff. That's super cool. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I guess like going off that, what future use cases do you see NFTs will will enter in the relatively sh like shortish term? Shortish as in like ten years versus like fifty years or whatever. But w where do you see NFTs expanding into the future? Because right now there are these kind of more uh, I guess playful markets in the sense of like gaming, collectibles, art, etc. Um, but as you mentioned before, like there's a lot of financial use cases that they can be used for. So yeah, wh where do you see NFTs expanding into? I'm I'm probably more of an NFT bull than most, um, which I, I know sounds crazy, but uh, I I'm hard pressed to like I guess a lot of this comes back to just like being bullish on crypto in general, but I have a hard time thinking of a world that doesn't involve like almost every valuable non fungible asset being an NFT. Uh, to me, it just all seems like too obvious. And like you're just creating significantly more efficient markets for all these things and more efficient trading and ownership. Um, and so I like kind of think that everything will be an NFT at some point. Uh, 
some of the stuff that I'm, I'm significantly more excited about kind of within the, that 10 year time frame is probably like metaverse stuff. I think that the metaverse is going to be really interesting. Uh, I don't really know. I, I, I would say I probably don't have as like thoughtful, like a thesis as some do on the metaverse, but I'm excited. I'm excited for it nonetheless. Um, and then a lot of these like financial products, I think are like, uh, houses, um, bonds, all this different kind of stuff. I think that that kind of stuff, uh, just real world and in DeFi make way too much space or make way too much sense to not be NFTs and then, uh, kind of unlock some of the really interesting features that NFTs can have just with an always on 24 seven liquid market and all of that. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's funny. You said like NFTs will probably be used for everything. Cause I, I say that most or like all forms of value will be represented on chain as an NFT. It, whether it yeah. be digital goods or physical goods, whatever, it'll all be represented on chain, which is like crazy to say today. But I, I, I just don't see why it wouldn't. You know, it's, it's almost like it's almost it's a hard, it's an easier question to say what markets won't be 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 you know be NFTs. But but I think even that is like I think zero. So yeah, no, it's very uh, very exciting stuff. Yeah, Arts. yeah, I think the only markets that maybe wouldn't make sense for an NFT is if you had something that was like really physically large so it was hard to custody and then it wasn't super expensive so it wouldn't make sense for like like to pay for the warehouses that you would need to like vault these things to mint the nft ious for that's like the only scenario i could think of where like an nft wouldn't make sense and even then i'm sure you can figure it out so what are those those are those big stones that were used as currency in like the islands it was called like the yap stone (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So, so those would not be those those are the only things that are not used for nfts probably maybe and even then <laughs> i feel like we probably figure out a way those would probably that, be some the, of the rarest nfts honestly that'd be really cool if, you, if, if people tokenize one of those yap stones or whatever they're called that'd be that'd be that'd be wild awesome all right cool so so speaking of kind of you know the future what are your thoughts on DAOs? i feel like you know the, the, the talk on on DAOs has really been picking up steam lately and, and i would love to hear Kind of high level thoughts on on DAOs, and if you if you yourself are a part of uh, of of any DAOs, yeah. So I'm a part of a lot of DAOs. Uh, I, I would say I have a bit of a DAO problem. The one I'm most active in is Pleaser DAO, um, but I, I've joined a good amount. I, I really like joining collector DAOs. Um, to be honest, I don't have as much time to be buying and selling NFTs as I used to, and so being able to kind of provide some capital and insight to a group of people who are interested in in collecting certain like uh like different avenues of things is like to me a great trade-off um and so yeah i'm a big fan of collector DAOs. Uh, i think they make a ton of sense in general i think that sometimes people want to turn too many things into DAOs because DAOs like sound really fun but also at the same time like running a, a, a DAO that's worth a lot of money is like an incredible amount of work it's really, really challenging, uh, and like generally, humans voting on things like don't normally get along very well, um, and that's there's been like some drama with that recently in a lot of different like governance systems, especially in DeFi, um, and so I'll be curious to see as we as we like continue to DAOify a lot of things, how we start to handle like voter apathy and just like the. D- there's always so many things pulling for your attention at any given time. Even like passing a snapshot vote can be hard sometimes. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how we start to handle those types of things. Uh, but in general, I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on kind of like the long-term uh, impacts of what it means to make a DAO and do all that stuff. 
I just think sometimes for like, you know, if you're buying something that's not worth that much money or that's like not a super focused thing with people who are like really, really passionate about something, maybe the DAO is going to have a lot more voter apathy and like lack of interest than you would hope. Interesting. Okay. So, so, so would you say that some of the pain points behind DAOs are, are really like the, the participation and would you say that a, a, a kind of a solution for that problem is would it make sense if there was like a hierarchy within the DAO? So it's like, all right, these five people are actually working for the DAO. Everyone else is a participant, but these five people are doing like the majority of the work and like they, they get more, more voting power because of that. Or, or what are some solutions for these pain points? Yeah, to be honest, I don't, I can't say that I like feel super confident that I have incredible solutions for these things. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think that DAOs having people full time is a really good step in the right direction. Um, I know other people will disagree with that stance, but I, I definitely feel that it makes sense. Um, unless you have a bunch of really, you know, just like wealthy people who are in the DAO who don't need to be working full time and they can just contribute 10% of their work week to 10 different DAOs. It, you know, a lot of the DAOs that I'm part of is people running DeFi protocols and building things in NFTs or they have real world jobs and, you know, families and stuff. And they just don't have time to be like super actively contributing to these things, which is totally fair. Um, so I, I think that kind of having I, I think I like to think about it as like having a hierarchy of people who not necessarily in like their voting power or anything, but just in the way that they like are able to execute on things where if you have something that's really not incredibly important, you're not moving money around, you're not doing something crazy. Like you kind of just have the agency to go do it. You don't need to ask for permission. Um, I, I think that kind of transitioning to models more like that is probably the, the step in the right direction where you, the DAO votes on the really important things and moving money and, you know, decides who is working for them. But then like once you are actually hiring people and doing all of that, you kind of let them have some more agency in what they're doing and how they how they do things. Awesome. All right. So, where do you personally want to be in, let's say, like five to ten years from now? What what is like your grand vision for for everything that that you're working on? Oh man. Um, perfect in a perfect world, fractional of the protocol is is fully decentralized and kind of running without the needed input of myself and kind of the the core team. Uh, and we are kind of we're building and and iterating on a, a fractional labs that's working with large brands and and helping them kind of you know traverse the the waters of what it means to fractionalize things. We're white labeling sites for them. We're doing all that kind of stuff. And I think what what is most important there to me is just that like I think that yeah, what's most important to me is that fractional is really empowering people to uh, be able to buy the things that are that look the rarest to them and like be able to just like be a part of the nft culture and the community without feeling like you have to have a half a million dollars to buy a crypto punk um i think that if we're able to do that that's it's been a huge success um and then you know we ha I have a lot more kind of grandiose goals of of where i think fractional itself can go um but then for me as well hopefully still actively contributing and, and just like a part of crypto and nfts um like I said earlier, I just I don't think there's anywhere else I'd ever want to go and work on. Um, and so hopefully I'm still in some meaningful way contributing through different collecting DAOs and being able to support artists and continue to build and, and create interesting things uh, on fractional and just kind of in crypto at large.
Awesome. Awesome. Andy, are you ready for the closing questions? Let's do it. Awesome. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Ooh, uh, good question. Saying one is so hard. Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with um, my Lorona boy that I use as my profile picture on Twitter. Um, I, there's like four different NFTs that I probably could have taken and made the good case for. Um, but I think it is my most aesthetically pleasing NFT. Uh, it's the one I probably get the most compliments on. When I swap between all of my different profile picture projects, uh, I definitely like it a lot. That's awesome. Very cool. All right. What is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or NFTs? Oof. Most controversial thought. Um, probably my feelings around smart contract upgradability and and like token governance uh, in general. It, it's hard to kind of bring down into into a small thought, but basically that it's really important we build systems and DAOs in place that are not just upgradable contracts controlled by some governance tokens, um, but that are actually smart contracts that are hardened and you know permanent on Ethereum that, that can't be changed. And even if that's at the sake of UI, UX. Awesome. All right. If you could snap your fingers and in- instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto slash NFT ecosystem, what would it be? Uh, it would be that all of the ETH L2s that people are working on are fully live and integrated with exchanges and easy to bring your funds onto so that people don't have to transact on ETH layer one anymore. I love that. All right, last question. Who is someone in crypto that you look up to and why? Um, that's a good question. I think I'll go, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of really incredible people who I've had the chance to work with in the space. Um, but I'm gonna go with uh, Mariano Conti. He was my old boss at Maker. Uh, he is just like one of the nicest dudes in the world. He's incredibly smart. Um, I believe he's working on his own thing right now. Uh, but he's just like, he's a guy who, if you ever need help with anything, he's he's there in a heartbeat. Uh, and he's uh, just kind of been around for a long time and he's not going anywhere. And I really admire that about him. Love that. Love that. Andy, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with me. This has been an awesome conversation. I, I love learning about your background. It's, it's super cool to see how you kind of dove deeper and deeper in, into rabbit hole before starting Fractional, which thank you so much for explaining that to me. I'm, 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 you know, I, I like how you were able to explain it in a way where e- even I could easily understand, which I, I think it's a really, really exciting, exciting product that uh, is only just now starting. So I, I can't wait to see where it goes. But if people want to find out more about yourself, find out more about Fractional, where should they go? What should they do? Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, you can follow me. I'm Andy8052 on, on Twitter. Uh, and then fractional is fractional.art is our URL. And our Twitter is fractional underscore art. Um, yeah, that's our main places. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Yeah. Th- th- thanks so much for, for, for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Hey everyone, stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.